The following is a production of Entertainment Rating Services. Son, you know your father was a rigger, a rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be. Hey everybody and welcome to Shackles, Burlap, and Lies. I'm your host Ethan Gilson and today I am joined by Jerry Ritter. Jerry, how you doing? I'm well, Ethan. Thanks for uh, reaching out to me. Absolutely. So uh, first question, like I always do for everyone, who are you? Who is Jerry? Uh, I'm Jerry Ritter. live in Dallas, born and raised in Dallas, Texas. Um, I have been in the entertainment business for 30 plus years and and I currently production tour rigger for uh, numerous people obviously we're home now but you know uh waiting as things open up it'll be BTS Eric Clapton Bruno Mars uh and the list goes on we'll see you know what happens next so how did you get into rigging what um you know, I often joke with people that there's not a lot of people who go to college to be rigging designers. It seems that a lot of people fall into the rigging side of our industry. So what was your uh, intro to rigging and how did that start? Well, it, you know, for me, it started in high school. I was, uh, I took a part-time job ushering at the local arena, um, arena, arena, basketball games, concerts, really saw some amazing shows back in the 80s uh early 90s and through that working myself you know six seven years i befriended people on the production side of it and once um that kind of got to a point to where it had ran its course i reached out to one of the guys i befriended carlin tally who worked for a staging company that would come through uh, Dallas. And there I was, 1990, went to work for a staging company, uh, putting up outdoor rooftops for you know stadium shows, festivals, uh, that sort of stuff. And, and that in tune, as I would do these shows, uh, connected me with production managers and tour riggers and, uh, after several years of putting up rooftops and, and I got hired to be second rigger on, on one of Fish's tours. And that was in, uh, I guess early, probably that was in 2000. And so since 2000, I've just worked my way through various artists and production managers, uh, as a tour rigger. So here's a question that I've had written down that I haven't asked any other guests. And it's not that it's anything special about the question. I just hadn't had a chance to do it. So I'm going to ask you, a, you know, we'll see how this goes. At what point in your career did you start calling yourself a rigger? And the reason why I ask this question is there's a lot of, a lot of people feel that people who are breaking into the industry shouldn't call themselves a rigger right away because there's a certain amount of knowledge or skill that they think you should acquire before calling yourself a rigger. So um, I think with someone with your experience would offer an interesting perspective uh, or opinion on that subject. 
you know, Ethan, listen, I have spent many a day, a night, um, climbing around the rafters of various stadiums and, and arenas here in Dallas. So having done that, pulling countless points, looking at, at weights and load distribution and, and what, and even with having to have a really good foundation and understanding and learning of that within the staging industry, I felt like I've been able to consider myself a rigger for most of my career. In your, uh, in, in your career development, how long was it before you were starting to uprig versus uh, being on the ground uh, assembling points in, in that portion of it? it? You know, I I guess looking back, I mean, I I didn't really spend much time in the uh, on the ground. I, I spent most of all my time up in the air. Um, I, you know, heights have never bothered me, so it it was second nature to be, you know, up in a truss on a beam, um, you know, whether it was 50 feet or, or 300 feet, uh, having just the, the, the calmness up there, that, that was just where I wanted to be. And so I didn't really go through the, uh, uh, the, the training was in the air. You know, uh, working alongside some really good people that showed me what it was that they were doing. That was, you know, it was just easy to come by. I didn't, I didn't really go through any, any, you know, there really wasn't any, you know, I guess certified or certification or training in, in the early nineties, you know? Right. And so you you learned as you would through apprenticeship, um, working under people. Literally working under people. Um, it, it brings up an interesting topic, which is that of fall arrest in the entertainment business. One that people have a perception that, Oh, we didn't have the laws didn't require fall arrest in the eighties and nineties. And it's only been a recent advent within the legal system which is actually a misnomer because it was it's always been required since OSHA was created in 1972. We just didn't use it. Have you know as someone who's gone through the time period of you know free climbing in the 80s to climbing or sit harnesses in the mid 90s um, if you did that to the last 10 or 15 years where full barning harnesses or, or appropriate fall arrest has become more of the norm. Um, how have you adapted or seen things change in that process specifically to fall arrest? I guess what the, what I, the biggest change that I have seen is that, you know, there now I, I feel there because of the fall protection that's in place and listen, I'm, I'm grateful that in the 70s, 80s, you know, 90s before fall protection came about that, you know, the uh, injuries and fatalities were low. They were low because I feel like the person that was there 
was more capable to do that work comfortably at that height and had had a special skill set that you know climbing around on a beam without any protection other than you and the beam and your skills made you a better person um so in that regard i do feel and i've seen people because that there's no fear of falling anymore necessarily that has created a a portion of of people that are working at heights probably shouldn't be working at heights it creates the false sense of security yeah yeah and and that's why i think it's important that if you are doing fall arrest fall restraint training that uh, you have the experience of being put in a harness and lifted by that harness so you can know how uncomfortable that is. Exactly. It starts to give you a glimmer of the sight of, listen, if you fall, even when fall arrest, yes, you're not going to go splat on the ground, but you're still going to get injured. It is still going to hurt. You could still end up with injuries that will put you in the hospital, especially in our industry where it's never, yeah, if you're on the high steel, you might fall and not hit anything, but if you're climbing a truss, you're hitting some stuff on the way down. You're, you're gonna hit a you're yeah. gonna hit a bumper or a light. Yeah. So I think you know the the attitude is you, fear is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It keeps you safe. So having a healthy respect for it. But you know, it, you talking about it made me think of stories that Rocky Paulson tells about the Cow Palace and them just freehanding it up the beams, and it's like that's what they did. They you know they were making it up as they went. Yep, and that's what you did, and you trusted yourself. You you trusted your skills, and you knew what you could do. And so, yeah, there's definitely an interesting psychological side to the the PPE and and not relying on it. There's a reason why OSHA says that the last thing you should be doing is putting a harness on, because it's still a bad choice. It's still risky. Absolutely, there, there, there's so, still inherent risk, you know, in it in what we do, even though you know, like you said. You know, with the harness fall protection horizontal lifelines you know i i think the uh i think one of the the uh things that people do that really don't realize that you know i guess just climbing a ladder but but climbing a rope ladder is you know I, i've seen numerous people just slip and you know yes the the fall protections engaged itself but but you know that even a simple thing is just getting up a ladder is uh, challenging or can be. Oh, yeah. Especially if you've never been properly told how to climb a rope ladder and you just attack <laughs> it like a regular ladder and you're like, but the bottom kicks out. Yeah. You know, that's for the for the inexperienced riggers out there. If anyone asks you to climb a, a rope ladder, ask how to first, because uh, don't be surprised if people tell you, go climb that ladder because they just want to be entertained watching you try to climb the first three or four feet. So you had mentioned that you have been on on several tours. Uh, you and I first initially had contact when I was doing some research for a presentation I was doing two years ago at the Event Safety Alliance. And you had been on the road with Bruno Mars for the 24K tour. And uh, a good friend of ours, Sean Hoffman, who's his tour manager, is a friend of mine, got us in touch with each other. And you were uh, really helpful in talking about that particular show. So I wanted to talk about that a little with you. What piqued my curiosity or my interest on that show wasn't just that it was a heavy show. 
So I believe it came in just about 155,000 pounds. But what was interesting was it's a very dense show. All of that weight, about 90% of that weight was above the stage or roughly a 90 foot by 75 foot area. You want to talk about some of the challenges of that show in dealing with that density? Because I think when you start to learn about the engineering side of rigging, you start seeing some things that engineers call local failure versus global failure. So the roof on the arena could be rated for 250,000 pounds. So, hey, we only got 150, we're 100,000 pounds under their capacity. But the roof's not designed to have all of that load in one small dense location. It's supposed to be spread out over the whole thing. So you guys were dealing with some interesting problems because it was so dense. Yeah, you know, the... Uh... Obviously, through you know, throughout the 200 shows that we did on that tour, um, there were several where uh, just the, the concentration of the load was not uh, where it exceeded the capacity of where we were at. There's an upside to some of these buildings now that they're you know the, the new arenas where they're you know they're all over a hundred plus feet. We have a show that trims somewhere around. 50 feet that gives you that gives you 50 feet to start spreading the weight out you know you know the longer bridles uh spanner truss other mechanisms that um allow you to distribute that load because of its concentration i mean you know just a, a few examples like i going into vancouver you know there were it was a very challenging slow day and that's because of the way we had to distribute the load you know there were places that we connected bridles to that hadn't seen anybody on that beam in in many years um you know uh the tacoma dome you know we ju we just couldn't get there on the weight that we wanted to hang and 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 distribute the concentration away from certain nodes. So, you know, then you go into a scenario of, of what components are, are on the, on the cutting block, you know? And so that sort of communication you have to have with uh, the uh, production manager and, and what elements, you know, there's, there's, you know, if we're going to start cutting weight, what's the most weight we can cut with the least amount of impact to the show. Uh, and, and, you know, so you, so you have a criteria of, okay, that, you know, so, so where I don't have to engage in him every single time, I know that we've had our conversation and we go, okay, this is the first to go. That's the second to go. That's a, you know, and you start going down the checklist of, of what can be cut to, uh, to still put the show out there that we've sold to people, um, and then there's, you know, when the craziest things were, you know, in the Oracle, um, because of the nature of its construction, the engineer was late to the table, uh, getting in, involved and ended up having to hang an additional hundred thousand pounds on the other side of the building spread throughout to create a more evenly distribution the building was rated for three hundred thousand pounds 150 and, and 25 percent of the building was was a concern of his so we ended up having to to hang additional weight 
to our show to satisfy the engineer. It's it's kind of like the old cantilever trick where your cantilever arm is so long or your weight so much that you end up having to put additional load on the other side of the fulcrum point Absolutely. to balance the system out. Absolutely. So on that tour, and in I, you know, this applies to a lot of tours that go out. What was the process in terms of who did the initial load calculations? I know that because of the information you shared with me, you guys used load cells at one point to actually weigh what or or to measure what weight was on each point. But was there that normal process of in pre-production, someone sat down and did hand load calculations? Was it you? Was it an engineer? And then you did the load cells and then went from there? Or was it instantly an engineer because of the size of the show and then load cells? Well, once, um, as we, you know, the design of the show came in very late, as they tend to do these days, um, like the final product. And so once we saw what, you know, how much we were having in the air, and it was decided, you know, we were doing rehearsals in Rock Lidditz. Uh, it was decided early on that, you know, let's just, you know, we, we hired load cell rental. They came in. They, you know, we put a load cell on every single point and weighed the entire show in rehearsal. So there was never a question of, you know, scratching heads. Well, what do you think we got up there? You know, we, we wanted to know. We wanted to know immediately, you know, like right off the bat what we had so that we could then take the realistic look of, okay, do we have too much? You know what, you know, and obviously we had a lot, but it was, you know, um, it wasn't too much, but yeah, there was no guessing about, about it. We, we went right to load cell rental and, and they came in and, and weighed the show for us. What's your thought on, I and this may be me getting too far into the weeds at times. One of the things that I have relative concerns about the use of load cells in pre-production is that it's highly dependent on you getting your truss in that same condition as when you measured it. So you get to your next venue, the truss isn't as level, you change your loads. Is that something that you guys actively considered as you were figuring out things like, was there a design factor on your points to say, in terms of, we know we're not going to get perfectly level every single time, so we have a little margin of error to deal with variations? You know, we, once we knew what it weighed, we, we, reached out to the, the rigging vendor, which was five points. And, and we rented load cells for the, I'm going to say the, the, the bulk of the, the trusses that were over the stage. And so again, 200 days, we, um, leveled the trust, not only with tape measures, but we, le we, we leveled it. We point leveled it so that the, the weight stayed, relatively you know within a couple of hundred pounds of what they weighed in in rock lidditz that's awesome to hear because i think a lot of people they do get that well we know how much the show weighs because we we measured it with load cells except it's you know things change yeah well variables you know and, and, i mean just a, a, and, and we're talking minor clicks on the on the controller right. up or down can be you know 
500, 1,000 pounds. And so when you get trusses that weigh so much, you know, because each one of those trusses weighed 8,000 pounds, and you get it on five points, it's easily to get a one-ton motor that has, you know, unbeknownst to you, 3,000 pounds on it. And so, yeah, it was very important for us to, to, to equal out that equal out that weight because now you get into that um you talked about the local failure versus global failure you know if you are connected to something and and you exceed that capacity there you know engineers looked at it and and they look at your plot and say okay well that that point weighs you know 1650 pounds well, you, you get that truss out of whack and all of a sudden that one point weighs 3,300 pounds and it never should. So what are the implications of that and what you're attached to? Maybe not a major arena, but more so when you go into some of these venues in, in Europe and across the world or the Tacoma Dome and it's a truss structure, you know? Yep. And so that truss structure is going to be you know, th- that's the weak point there. Uh, so it's very important to, to manage your, your rig. So here's here's a, a total left turn for about two seconds. If, uh, if any of the listeners have been playing with Braceworks, which is the finite element analysis plugin for Vectorworks Spotlight, one of the preferences you can change is uh, the drop truss. And so basically what they're talking about is if you have a mother grid, or a spanner truss, it's going to deflect under load. And so you can tell the software to consider what that deflection will be if it knows what the truss is for the other truss underneath or to treat it as a rigid beam where it doesn't deflect. And that's one of those things where you start loading a building, it's moving, it's deflecting, yeah. it's, it's, it's shifting. You might never be able to see it, but it, that's what the force is doing to it. And you have to consider those things in the overall system and what you're doing to the building. Right. Out of that rabbit hole, um, one of the things, and I'll, I'll just give some people some information because I think the data is really interesting. And this is a, a gross number, not a you know specific line array, but the, the two groups of audio, which was called stage left and stage right were almost 12,000 pounds each. And so 24,000 pounds or, you know, 20% of the show hang was audio. Um, The other interesting thing I noted was the heaviest point was just about 3,600 pounds, somewhere in that range. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people who don't do rock and roll or, or concert touring, you know, the 120 K type show anything over 1500 or 2000 pounds. I mean, there are a lot of corporate industrial companies that never touch a two ton motor, even with the dramatic increase of led walls, because they add a lot of weight, but we tend to do a lot of smaller hoists instead of less larger capacity hoists. You had mentioned different buildings. What, what is the, what's your least favorite arena to rig in? Wow, least favorite arena to rig in. Um, most of them are gone now, <laughs> but I would I would tend to say, uh, God, those are some tough. Uh, 
least favorite. Hmm. See, I always ask, I ask the difficult questions. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's a list of, of things that I don't like about certain buildings. Um, the least favorite building, you know, I, I guess if we were still playing, there'd be the Arco in, uh, in Sacramento. Uh, any of the buildings where the grids on a, on, on a, at a 45, just, you know, the layering in aspect of it creates, uh, a bit of a challenge, um, to, to rig in. A whole series of questions just jumped into my head, which I think is great. So fire away. <laughs> I do, I do a lot of trainings and it's usually in, in last, uh, two episodes ago was with Eric Rouse and Ed Leahy. And we talked all about training and we talked about it's difficult when you're doing a training to try to keep everyone engaged the entire time. Cause you have a different, a variety of skill base. You know, there are new people, there are people who've been rigging for years and years. So one of the questions that I thought would be interesting for those who listen, who are newer to the business is when you were on tour, and you mentioned a, a sloped or a raked uh, grid. How much of the bridal work would you do beforehand or during load-in versus how much would you rely on the local crew to have their experience of their building and that input? Would you walk in in that situation and say, here's where I need the points and just kind of move on with your day? Or would you spend time focusing on figuring out the bridles? No, you know, so... I have been able to, you know, the, the last couple of productions I've been on and I've been able to staff it in a way that allows me to have a set of guys that do the mark out, right? You know, I do the computer work, do the overlays. Um, and so as they mark out, I stay with the local head rigger and we jointly work on bridles. He obviously has the day in, day out um, knowledge of the building, what works in there between various things. And if, you know, so I give them a lot of leeway, but, if, if, you know, the moment I, you know, if, once the first bridal is called, I'll step back. I look and, and I'll double check the math. Does the math fit in with what, you know, he's calling as a bridal? Does it fit in with the, the requirements that I'm? putting on him, you know, as far as apex heights and, and, you know, following the distribution, is there a, a set rigging plan from the structural engineer that says these 10 points need to go this direction or, or need to attach here. Um, so I do leave a fair amount to the local guy, making sure I double check his math so that I know what we're doing is what I need done. I don't leave it up to him totally. I, and I don't have, you know, I have other things going on, so I don't necessarily have the ability time to, to call every single bridal either. That's why it's a joint partnership, you know, and I, and I firmly believe that when I walk in the building where we're, we're, you know, he's as much and, and that local, the, the local team is just as much an integral part of my overall team uh, for, you know, for us three or four riggers walking in, it's just as important to get done what we need to get done that day. 
in the time we need to get it done. I think it's interesting because basically you're walking in and you're doing a evaluation. You're you're kind of reading if you have if you have no knowledge of that particular team, if it was a new venue that you had never worked with that crew before, there's that feeling out period of, okay, how much how much can I how much responsibility can I give to this person and do other things or do I need to spend more time with them to make sure that they understand what we're trying to do? Right. No, and that's, listen, and it's great. You know, you know, I've 20 years of going to, to arenas, you know, there's others out there, you know, the Chuck Mountains, the Paul Ingersons, the Bart Durbin's and stuff. And, and they've got, you know, more years on me, um, which, you know, all of those guys I've looked up to for years, but having the, the history with, going to the same venues every year, you do build up that camaraderie and, you know, to where when I walk in the building, I know who I'm getting as the local guy and vice versa. You know, they knew who, who, who they're getting when I walk in the building and that they know what my expectations are and how I operate my production. And so I, I feel very fortunate that I've built a lot of good relationships over the years working with people day in and day out year after year. Yeah. And, and the topic has come up in, in previous podcasts of this industry is about relationships and it's about, uh, reputations. So the more you can do to build your reputation and the more, uh, the reality is the more people or the less people dislike you, the easier it is. You know, if it, I mentioned before, it's not that everyone has to love you, but if they respect you, they're going to do a good job for you. They're going to work hard. If you treat them right, they're going to go the extra mile for you, whether it's you made a mistake and you need them to fix it or, hey, guys, we're running five minutes behind. Can you can you just I Absolutely. know we're supposed to take lunch. Can we wait five more minutes? And they're more than happy to do it. And no one complains and you get it done because it's it's that team effort. Absolutely. Absolutely. You had mentioned a couple of names. One of the questions I asked people of who have some of your mentors been? And I and I've as I've asked this question, I've added some information with it. Keep in mind that mentors don't necessarily have to be older than us. They can be peers. But who have some of the people who either taught you certain things in the industry or helped mold your outlook of the industry in really you were able to learn some important lessons from that you carry on today. You know, I guess one of the, the first ones got in Carlin Talley, you know, we, uh, he's the friend of mine that I reached out, went to work for concert staging services. And he just had the, you know, just a, the happiest guy can do attitude, you know, even when it is going sideways, um, so early on, he was you know, influential in, in actually me getting into the to the production side of the business. Um, you know, Haddon Hipsley, who was a production manager for for Fish for years, uh, he was one that you know saw potential in me that that uh, was bigger than what I you know had had opened a window or open the curtains to a window to, for me to see something that, that I didn't see before. Um, and then just, you know, really took me under his wing and, and, uh, gave me a lot of opportunities. Um, and then, you know, I guess 
rigging wise, you know, was Paul Ingerson and Bart Durbin, you know, they really just, you know, are some, you know, been in the industry for, for decades that, uh, you know, they were some of the first ones that I worked underneath. Um, and, you know, gave me a, a good lessons and skill sets. And, and, you know, I guess, Aside from that, you know, just my parents, you know, really just uh, giving me a, a, a great work ethic, you know, which I think is, is lost on, on people or, or a good portion of the generation today is, is a work ethic. And then also, you know, just treating people the way you want to be treated. You know, that was a couple of things my parents really impressed upon me that uh, I feel has just been you know, instrumental in, in, in a success story of a kid from Dallas, Texas. I was going to ask you, what piece of advice would you give to someone breaking into entertainment rigging? You kind of answered that with some of your pieces, but is there anything else specific to someone who's just getting into the business? Maybe they're about to work their first rigging call. What would you say to them? I'm here with you. You know, I mean, that we're, we're in it all together. And that, uh, you know, just don't be scared. I mean, you know, don't let it intimidate you this because there are times, you know, what we do can be very intimidating. You know, when you walk, you know, when the, the fact is that if, and maybe it's not something that you necessarily did, but that somebody that is working under your authority does something that can hurt or kill somebody that alone can be very intimidating, but that's why you really just need to be on top of your game and pay attention to what, you know, even in the peripherals of what all is going on. Uh, and just be ready to sweat, you know, don't be afraid to, to work hard because that's what it's going to take to, if you're going to you know be successful. Yeah, working hard can be fun, you know, especially, you know, I have a friend of mine who will mention multiple times, fundamentally, we all ran away enjoying the circus. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of fun. We create some very interesting pieces of entertainment, pieces of art, and it can be very rewarding to work extremely hard to overcome the challenges of the situation, whether it's the, you know, hey, we got a condensed timeline or a technical challenge and working together at a team and having success and then watching a crowd come in and they saw none of it in terms of the challenges. What they see is this performance and they leave and they're like, that was awesome. That was the best night of my life. And you contributed to creating that environment. So absolutely very rewarding. Absolutely. You had mentioned that on the the Bruno tour, you guys pre-poed in Rock Lidditz. What did you think about uh, Studio One? Listen, I think they've done a, a great job. Uh, obviously, there are, you know, a couple of things that, you know, that on some of these, you know, we, we were just there doing BTS, uh, you know, putting up the stadium show inside of Studio One. Um, but they've done a great job. It's a great first step to, you know, for uh, a rehearsal studio that has the uh, amenities there that you need to, to do a production rehearsal. You've got you know adequate uh, height to, to hang any show. You've got 
uh, an easy grid to hang it from. You've got proper production spaces. Um, you know, the, I would say the only thing that's really lacking is a little bit of uh, additional storage um, as, as these productions are, are getting larger and larger and larger. Yeah, they're, uh, and I don't know what the current update post pandemic is, but they had just after the last event safety summit in November of last year, they were preparing to do groundbreaking on the expansion of Studio One, um, which was going to add another full sized uh, rehearsal space and, in theory, some more office and, and storage space between them. Yeah, we were there in, in March uh, with the BTS and and the ground had been broken. You know, dirt was being moved uh, on the end of Studio One and as well as, you know, just kind of across the parking lot for, for that next expansion. I highly recommend that if you're traveling through the uh, Lancaster... Yeah, Lancaster, Pennsylvania area, whether it's you're going to Amish country because you want to, you know, do the touristy thing or you're actually going to Rock Lidditz, go and check out that facility. Um, I joke all the time. It is something magical to walk out of Studio One and smell cow manure. You're like rock and roll manure. This surprisingly goes hand in hand. Yeah. But seriously. Your horse-drawn buggy just, you know, going down the street past all the semis. Yeah, and it is, it, it, I've mentioned it before, it's like Mecca. It's this big black box in the middle of a field, and you come over a hill, and it's there, and you're like, wow. But just the environment, all of the technology that's there, it's, it, it is a, uh, a, a rigorous dream. Anyone who works in the entertainment business, it's a pretty impressive place. Yeah. So what have some of your favorite projects been, or what have some of the favorite challenges that you've faced on some of these shows been that um, you really enjoyed the process of how you overcame or solved the problem? You know, I think, uh, I mean, obviously Bruno was probably one of the first uh, shows that I was responsible for that was that heavy. Um, so, you know, just and figuring out the, the, the order, you know, so um, even Jonas Brothers recently, you know, was the just, you know what it is, it, it's it's figuring out the the flow, right? Because the, the, the flow that we have sets the pace for every everybody else. And obviously, you know, certain departments have a, have a, a higher priority of getting points in the air than, you know, uh, than others. And so, and it's figuring out a, how to manage that flow, but manage it in a way that fits with the overall picture. You know, like I, I just don't need to go hang, you know, eight points of a cable bridge and then go back and start over again. How can I incorporate other things into that flow that are efficient? You know, and then it, one of the other projects, I took over uh, this Panic at the Disco and we had a, um, it was a, a tracking uh, automated platform that had a a, um, a piano on it. So the artist would go up and do a solo uh, part 
on this. And it's obviously I wasn't in on that from the beginning. So once I took over, you know, quickly learning on the fly, how does it incorporate with everything else? Because based on where we're positioned in the building, you know, the short it lengthens, it shortens, you know, so there are variables there and how to manage that point movement on, on the fly every single day. Um, so those are just a couple of things, you know, and again, I just going back, really, it's, it's learning out the nuances of each individual show. Right. Yeah. Last week, uh, Jim Shumway from Tate and I were talking and we were talking about that, the overlap between automation and the rigor and that relationship of trying to, to bridge the gap, the gap, English speak well, I don't, uh, trying to bridge the gap between the rigor and the automation folks and an understanding of what they're doing so that you can work better together to, to achieve the goals. Um, yeah, they're definitely intertwined in for sure. I was going to say, how has your knowledge of automation grown over the time period as someone who started in the 80s where it was, here's a chain hoist, here's truss. And then yeah. eventually it was, okay, we can start moving some truss. And now we got turntables and LED walls tracking and you name well, it, it's out there. Yeah, first and foremost, I don't ever want to be that guy. I don't want to push the, you know, that's not who I am. I don't want to push the button and, and you know, do the cues. That that takes a different individual that I'm not. Uh, but understanding that he's moving tens of thousands, you know, a 10,000-pound video wall, you know. Uh, I think on this Jonas Brothers things, you know, we had a biparting video wall that, was on a grid and, 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 you know, kind of referenced the, that was another show that was condensed. You know, it was a, uh, we had on the grid for this bipart tracking video screen, uh, you know, it was, uh, 18, two tons on that grid alone. And depending on where it was in the show, you know, the, all the weight could be downstage which, you know, those two screens weighed, weighed uh, just under 10,000 pounds. They could be in the middle of the stage or they could be all the way upstage where we had another third video wall that was automated but only went up and down. Um, so at a certain point, you know, we could have, uh, you know, 18,000 pounds of video wall and its grid structure in, in one area. So... It, it's, you know, again, I've got to do my job so that they can do their job. And right. they're definitely intertwined in together. So I'm going to ask a, a fairly simple question. And again, it's kind of uh, to give information to people who haven't done the touring thing. Well, what was the typical load-in schedule or, or show schedule, I should say, load-in through show and load-out in terms of the timing and the, um, and the procedures? Like what... And I realize it changes from show to show, but on average, it's a, you show up at what time, what's the first thing you were doing and, you know, walk us through that process. Right. You know, so once we're in a groove, you know, generally, uh, for the most part, 6 a.m., I'm walking in the building with myself, uh, the, the rest of my rigging team, production manager, stage manager, 
promoter rep um, and production coordinator. And so I'm on the floor. I've, I've already done my homework. I already know, you know, based on dialogue with, with the, you know, either the building engineer or the uh, most importantly, promoter rep, production manager to where I know where this is sitting. So I don't have to ask them necessarily, you know, where we're, you know, how far off the wall today, because it's, you know, it's, it's determined. We've already, we've already determined where it is weeks ahead of schedule. Um, So walking in 6am, you know, generally get an hour to meet with the local head rigger. We, we mark out the the floor, um, confirm bridles, you know, what what gear we're going to need that day. You know, we, we may not need all the steel. We may need more, you know, more steel, just depending on the height of the building. So 6 a.m. mark out, 7 a.m. I start, you know, uh, start hanging points. And then by then, the you know, pretty much the rest of the crew minus the back line uh, is showing up in the building um, as, you know, they're getting their orientated uh, for where their stuff needs to go that day. Um, 7 a.m. start, you know, generally by 10, 30, 11 most days. Um all the points are in the air. So now it's just watching main, you know, just being, being available, aware if there's any issues, motor doesn't work, you know, whatever litany of things could, could happen. Uh, but just be available until the rig is at trim sometime around, you know, generally 1231 o'clock most days. Um, once everything's in the air, then, then, you know, the stage is rolled in place. Um, most of the shows I'm on, it's a, it's a rolling stage. So while we're, we're hanging points on one end of the building, the carpenters are building the, the set on the other end of the floor. Right. And, and, uh, so yeah, by generally by two o'clock, the stage is in place and then now becomes, the you know, uh, you know, the, the, the engineer side of it. So, you know, the, uh, the LDs getting his daily focus, the uh, audio boys are doing their, their levels and, and such, uh, floor lights are going in place, cameras are set up, you know, and then it's, uh, generally, you know, three thirty, maybe four o'clock. That's when it's time to find a quiet place for a minute or, uh, get to the office and, and work on the continuous of, of overlays for the other countries that we may be going through or wherever we're at in our, in our schedule. Um, and then doors at, at six 30, you know, uh, opening act most times, pop star comes on nine, nine to 11 generally. And, uh, 11 o'clock then it's all, it's, you know, groundhog day. It's in the reverse stage out of the way. Yep. Trust coming down, you know, going right out to the dock, um, cabinets going in place, motors getting put in boxes and, and points being lowered. And then, you know, at the, you know, generally, uh, 130, it's all in the truck shower, either back to the hotel if we're doing a flight tour or, um, or on the bus get a few hours sleep before 6 a.m. starts again. Yeah, so the uh, young folks in the business 
four hours of sleep a night. That's what you're looking at. Yeah, that that pretty much was a 20 hour day right there. Pretty much, you know. Before we started recording, we were talking about some of the potential changes we could see post pandemic in terms of people having a chance to catch their breath and kind of reevaluate the the cliche saying what's important in life. What do you think some of the what are certain areas within our industry that need the greatest improvement? I think in certain markets, you know, there needs to be more of a focus on on training folks. You know, I'm pretty fortunate, like the the, the, the caliber of, of generally, if you're a rigger, you have a certain skill set, good, bad or indifferent, um, that I don't think, that, you know, like, yes, everybody can use some training, but I, I guess a little bit more on the hand side. But but I think training needs a bit more focus on training and, and uh, apprenticeship in certain areas. The I firm believer also that we need to, you know, really assess a schedule, you know, I mean, is that, you know, it's ironic saying this, but do we really need to do this? You know, I know it's a, it's a dollars and cents thing, right? So I I think some of the ramifications may come that if, 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 if a promoter is not going to, to, you know, if they're immediately going to not go with these extravagant artist guarantees it what kind of you know what what impact is that going to have on the show that the artist is then putting out there um and then so now you know it's a so it's a snowball where artists aren't getting a lot of money then maybe this show size is smaller and then maybe the frequency of shows may go down a bit there's there's just several variables there yeah there's an interesting thing that comes up about the number of hours that people work in the entertainment business. And, and usually it's not a 40 hour a week industry, but the topic will come up that in certain countries, there are pretty strict laws about how many hours you can work in a week. And, and for instance, in France, there are significant penalties. If you, you can't pay people overtime, basically right. you can work a 40 hour a week and that's it. And it, really confuses people, especially from the States about, well, how do you do it like a four or five day show? Like, how can you make that happen? And it's about the planning. You make sure that you do the schedule specifically so that the people who do your rehearsal do your show, but they're not necessarily the same people doing your load in and load out or your notes call. Right. It's a very different thought process, but the but idea is that, well, even like there are, uh, you know, the, the, the new building in San Francisco, uh, my friend Bob Powers is the head rigger there. He, you know, he does the load in and up until trim. And then he, you know, his day is done because, it, you know, he technically, and, and so you have to have a larger pool to pull people from, but, you know, they're not necessarily, you know, on the turnaround side of it, you know, they need eight hours to turn around. Obviously you get done at one thirty, two o'clock in the morning. The next call starts at 6 AM. There's no, you know, there is no opportunity to have that. Um, so again, it, you know, yes, it goes back to having a larger base of people to pull from, you know, you mentioned, uh, France, I, I know it well, you know, most of the people that do my load ins don't do my loadouts there becomes a bit of a challenge because you do want to have some of that continuity there 
right. people that that have seen it, that that knew, knew what it, you know, that built it. You don't want to have to necessarily um, teach a whole new set of people something on the loadout. So it's trying to mitigate that. They do it well with, you know, like the, the, I guess there's a percentage of people to where, and again, it goes back to hours and then the planning of that. So if, you know, if this allotment of people, you know, once they get to their certain amount of hours, then, you know, basically there's three groups. There's the groups that do the load in, groups that do the load out, and then there's a the groups that, that do both. And then, but from those three groups, they rotate in and out of that to where everybody gets to be on the same channel as far as maybe you just do load ins for a while maybe you just do load outs for a while maybe you know yep. you're, you're the bridge in between so um, and in in theory uh it creates more opportunity for more people to be able to work and then there's a whole rabbit hole into itself about how much do you pay people so that everyone's making a good earnings and you you know the idea is they're not relying on overtime for people to make a living wage. And we, I talked about with Lori uh, last episode about we've incentivized people to work overtime or midnight calls because we pay more for it and people want to make more money. But does that expose them to more risk because they're getting tireder and tireder and they're not as efficient? They're not working as hard. So if you have a fresh crew on your loadout, if you can find that sweet spot where it's not so steep of a learning curve, but they're fresh and they're working hard, you may end up being at the same efficiency to say. Yeah, no, I mean, listen, as, as we go through these tours and, and, and you look at the schedules and the routings and you're talking with various people at various shows, you know, it's like I've been the first show of a five in a row and I've been the last show of a five in a row. And I'd much rather be the first show of a five in a row than the last, you know, because you just yep. see, you know, there is only a finite amount of people in any given market, you know, and, and with, again, it goes back to the size of these shows that, you know, I, I generally have a, a, a 30 man rig call, just the nature of the shows, 20 up, 10 down. That's a lot of folks just on a rig call, much less the 80 hands. So now we're talking about 110 people five days in a row at the building, you know, and so most markets struggle, struggle to fill yeah. those calls, you know, and that's just one venue, much less you get to Dallas, Texas, and there's, you know, five different, you know, you got a stadium show going on, you got uh, the amphitheater, you got the uh, Toyota Music Factory, and, and an arena show, you know, so, and you do that in Dallas or Chicago or you know, wherever, and, and it, it becomes a struggle to feel call. So again, it's, it's a weird dynamic because it's not an industry to where necessarily, you know, and that's where the challenge is. Like a guy could work 80 hours one week and he could work eight the next. Right. How do you, you know, so you, know, you got to kind of make hay while the sun's shining, but it, it, it is, it's always been a, a roller coaster and a challenge to, to weather the ups and downs. Absolutely. So this next question is one of my favorites. Besides dropping something, what is your worst fear as a rigger? 
hanging it in the wrong spot. <laughs> That's a good answer. We we joke about oh, rotate the room ninety degrees, yeah. but yeah, or, but, but it's not even it's it's not even uh, ninety degrees. It's like you know if if you're too far off the wall, you know, and and the show has sold two hundred seventy degrees worth of tickets, and you've pushed it out four feet. You know, that's you're talking about a few thousand people that now can't see the show. Right. And and money, money talks. You know, it, it it, that's that it is does. none of us are doing this just for the love of the art. We're doing it to, to earn a living so we can live our lives. It may make it easier if you love doing it, but um, it's about selling tickets and making revenue so that you can uh, get paid. Well, you know, there's, and there is a sacrifice of, you know, working 20 hour days and, and being on the road for eight months, nine months of the year. You know, I think that's part of the reason, you know, at least I, I feel like there, there's part of the reason why also, you know, the wages are kind of where they're at because it is a sacrifice away from your families, you know, much less the long days. Right. Absolutely. And, and that's a very individualized question about is the financial gain worth the, a personal sacrifice that you'll make, whether that's with relationships with family or friends, um, or the the wear and tear on your body. Absolutely, because it, it's you know it the, the addition you know the long hours the, the the hard work. I mean you know it it you you know the longevity. How long are you going to be able to do this? Yeah, so. I think there are some people who would say, why won't, why am I going to ask this next question to someone who, to someone who arguably has achieved a lot of success in the industry? And I think for a lot of people being the head rigger on a tour, that's it. That's the goal. But the question is, do you have a dream job as a rigger or within the entertainment industry? The reason I think it's important to ask that question is because I think it allows people to kind of focus on the fact that you can have lofty dreams and they can change and you can continually evolve in the industry. Again, bringing up that idea that your path is never a straight line. So it's not A to B, it's a journey between those. So is there a dream job? Are you doing it currently? I, Anything I mean, besides retirement? Yeah, I would tend to say um, I probably have my dream job in the industry because I get to travel the world on somebody else's dime, lug my golf clubs around and play on as many nice golf courses as I can possibly play in. Nice. That's certainly, uh, certainly a good answer. Um, is there a tool or a widget that, uh, either just before the pandemic or currently that you're just all about something you love. And it, and it could be anything from a hand tool to software to a new product that's you supposed know, to or has been released in the industry. I, I, I would say, you know, it's, it's a bit challenging to spend the money on it now, but I really would like to try that brace works out. Yeah. It, I, you know, I, I've seen some good things about it. I don't, you know, I don't know anybody that uses it yet, unless you do, then you'd be the first one. Um, 
I'm I'm not a good judge because I'm a beta tester for them, and that was that was an appropriate use of beta. It's not a Boston accent kicking out. Um, <laughs> it's a it's a very powerful tool. I think there's it's kind of funny. It 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 there's a mindset with it that's kind of the same as the mindset that came with ETCP when it was first rolled out, which was. I don't need this to tell me I'm a good rigger. Well, you know, so for me, it, honestly, Ethan, like as a tour rigger, I wouldn't necessarily like, you know, the, the, the hours are filled as much as they are already. And so, you know, to, I don't know that I would necessarily, well, I'd have to really, understand it to see how it would enhance my job okay but i do some consulting for venues and bridal plans you know because i there's two things you know there, there's the, the 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 managing of the, the management side of being a tour rigger and how you manage your, your your locals how you manage your equipment how you manage your time so as a tour rigger i find myself as a head tour rigger, I find myself more focused on managing things rather than the actual rigging of things. Right. Um, whereas some of the uh, consulting that I do, it's actually back to the nuts and bolts of rigging. So that's where I feel like I would be able to incorporate that into what Jerry Ritter does, not so much as a tour rigger. Right. Um, yeah. And it's, it, it my point, what I was trying to get to was there are times where I think it could be too powerful a tool. I think you got to be careful. It does not replace an engineer, but what it can do is if, if you're a rigger who does 20 to 40 point shows and you're doing load calculations yourself to figure out how much your load is and whether or not you need another motor in the truss, or you're going to change the dimensions of the truss because you need more right. capacity it can speed that process up right. if, and again, when I teach, I use the building block thing. If you understand what it's doing for you. So here's a tip. If you're just learning Braceworks, look at the preferences because they apply a design factor by default. So if you, and this is exactly what I did when I started playing with it. I drew a 20 foot truss. I put on two half ton motors. I put a thousand pounds right in the middle. So intuitively, intuitively, we know that we should get 500 pounds on each motor. And I was getting like 650. And, I, okay. and, and I'm purposely ignoring self-weight of the trust in the motors right now. And yeah. I was like, oh, that's weird. Like, it's more, was... the, the, total the total load is more than what my payload was. Right. And then eventually I found the, the preferences and saw that they were applying a design factor. So they uh... were increasing it. Well, it wasn't very clearly marked at first that that was what was happening. So if you were looking for actual loads, you just wanted pure loads versus what should you be telling, you know, the venue you're going to put on it so that you have some margin of safety, it, it can change things. And okay. if you just go, if you just blindly go into it and trust it, you right. could create some issues. That being said, I think there are some good applications for it. I have a couple of engineer friends who I won't mention by name that we are kind of playing with it. Not that the engineers would particularly use it, but there's a learning curve for them in terms of 
how much can they trust it well, so that as they build a relationship, you could do a drawing, do the, the analysis, send it to an engineer to verify. And if that makes the process easier, great. But they have to trust the information you're giving them first. So that's going to take some time. Yeah. Well, and I guess, you know, my curiosity of it is what kind of, you know, as, as far as like a, you know, a drop down venue when, you know, the, the, the motor tool, right. And you go to the drop down menu and that motor tool, you know, it's the various manufacturers, various chain, you know, length, various, um, like all the object info is there at your fingertips. How, you know, is there, I guess the library of venues, you know, how is that working? You know, how can you alternate between one venue to the next? Um, back in the, back in the late nineties, early two thousands, there was a website that was created to, in theory, put drawings of different venues to create this library mm -hmm. and it never really took hold. I'm not quite sure why, but there is part of it, which is there are some venues that don't want the drawings out there because they don't want you making assumptions. They don't want you not communicating with them because drawings may be accurate and, and good, but they may not tell the entire story. So no, it, listen, I get it. It's it. Listen, it, it is a what 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 I really try to stress, you know. And, and there's there's a, a company out there that does drawings for for uh, venues and and. and and, you know, these are public, it's, it's all public information. Like you can go to any library, you know, it, it, there, there's not a proprietary thing on it. And, and that's where, you know, as a tour rigger, my biggest challenge is, is trying to, obviously I've built, you know, relationships with buildings. I, I have a good network of, of associates that I work with. And we share information. You know, if, if we go to uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, and, you know, we're, we're doing our layout and on the drawing, it has a catwalk here. But in reality, the catwalk is here. You know, we, we talk to one another. So what I really try to stress to people, be it, you know, buildings or other riggers or, or companies that that may have information is we're collaboration here and you know it, like it it only makes us better as as a whole if we're able to have good information and good intel you know because it does nothing you know it does nothing for me if, if, if I have good information and I don't give it to you and you're going into the same building and now you have challenges or problems with what you're doing, because I, I feel like what I have is proprietary information. No, I mean, we're, we're part of one unit here, you know, we're, we're in this right. together. And, and so that's what I really try to stress to people with drawings. And, you know, if other riggers call me up and say, Hey man, you got a you know, drawing in this building. Absolutely. You know, here you go. Yep. You know, you know, because it just makes us better as a whole. Absolutely. You had mentioned earlier about training and the need for more training. Are there things that you do? And again, 
with the pandemic, I'm sure we're sick of hearing about that and how it's affecting us. Uh, online training recently, a lot of people with the added time have been doing online training classes, whether it's been uh, Chicago Fly House or uh, ESP with Eric Rouse or Bill Saps. This has been doing stuff. Um, are there any things that you've done, not only pandemic, but beforehand in terms of uh, educating yourself on new equipment, new practices, or just reviewing old stuff? You know, I would say I, I would do a few of the webinars on 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 VectorWorks. Um, since this, you know, whole shutdown, I'll be honest with you, I, I, you know, having touring, having toured pretty heavy, pretty heavy for like the last uh, seven years, six, seven years. You know, honestly, I'm, I'm still kind of enjoying a little bit of the time at home. Uh, and, yep. uh so I, I'm sure as this thing will pro prolong, I need to put my uh, student hat back on and uh, just take the opportunity, take the time to, you know, to uh, educate myself a bit better on a few things. Uh, but currently, I'm, Ethan, I'm just really kind of still enjoying a little bit of the time at home, doing some golf, may go fishing tomorrow. Nice. Yeah, I've, I've, you know, we've all been doing projects around the house. And then, as I said before, picking up old habits or hobbies, I should say, not old habits. Although that could happen too. Uh, picking up, picking up old hobbies that you may have not had the time to do and, and just enjoying those things again. And, and, you know, living your life, getting, getting back to the important stuff, which is enjoying life, living every day as it's uh, handed to you and, and, uh, Maybe that will help us find some balance as we move forward. Absolutely. All right. I think it's time to ask you, this has been historically the most difficult question I have asked every single guest. What is your best or worst rigor joke? Well, <laughs> best or worst rigor joke? Uh, probably that one there. I don't have one. <laughs> that, that That is a difficult question. Uh I mean, you know, I, I guess the worst one is what's the difference between God and a rigger? God doesn't walk around saying he's a rigger. Exactly. That's yep, probably that, that. That that has come up. Uh, That's actually, the only one we got. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, it's funny. I I I'll ask the question, and if they don't have one, I've been been trying to pitch in. So I may have to in post production add one in because I'm I'm drawing a blank. Um. Yeah, I should be better prepared next time. I'll, I'll drop <laughs> it in in post. I'll drop in a joke. All right. Have you heard the one about the two riggers walking past a bar? No one has. They don't walk past bars. Excellent. Well, that is, I think, the end of the questions that I had or the things I thought about. Um, are there any last thoughts or things that you want to share with the listeners? You know, Ethan, um, honestly, it, I, I, again, just really appreciate you, you, uh, included me in on this. Um, I, uh, you know, the, the only thing I really will, you know, and I try to preach this daily, you know, um, be passionate about what you do, you know, be passionate. Uh, and that is, 
to me just a, a portion of, of of success you know i mean I, I think we all come through life and we you know have to take a job that we may not necessarily want um but doing what you love to do is the, the, you know just the beginning of it and, and everything else will fall in place i think those are excellent words of wisdom well jerry thank you very much for spending time uh with me today recording this i think there's been a lot of good information about uh a different side of the industry that especially younger riggers getting into the industry haven't experienced yet and that's one of the things i've been trying to do with podcasts is just give information to everyone the other thing is there's a lot of rigging out there not all of it is tour rigging sometimes it's corporate rigging it's ballroom rigging it's theater rigging so allowing people to hear about what different portions of our industry offer and the experiences has been great. But most importantly, I appreciate you sharing some of your story and allowing people to hear about the different people in our industry and how they're contributing to making it a, what I think is a absolutely amazing industry to be in and very rewarding. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Ethan, thank you, man. I'm, you know, glad to give my time to those, uh, you know, always glad to give my time. Excellent. Well, everyone, thank you again for listening. And until next time, keep the pin in the shackle. Son, you know your father was a rigger. A rigger was he. Son, the shoes you have to fill are bigger, as big as can be.